more than that. And I'm sure that the heavenly chorus that sings before the throne of God don't just sing every morning, Hallelujah! Amen! Now let's get on to work. I think they sing before the throne of God continually, and they probably repeat a lot of things. Because that gives us a chance to meditate on it, to think about it, to let it soak into us, and to get inside our emotions and set the music. Music can be very emotional. Now, in what we just listened to, the trumpet shall sound, the bass who was singing kept saying, and we shall be changed. Who's we? Was it he? I doubt it. He will not be in the first resurrection. I don't know his religion or whether he had any or not. He's just somebody that sings in an orchestra or with an orchestra. He probably is a Protestant if he sings that type of music. Protestants will not be in the first resurrection. I did a series of sermons before this group ever began back in when I was a CGG entitled, How Exclusive is the Church? It was a series of nine, and I think there was understanding imparted in that that corrected a lot of error and misunderstanding that we had in Worldwide Church of God. I know some of you have listened to that series. If you have not heard it, I highly recommend you go back and listen to all nine of those. If you've not heard them, you have missed a lot of what God has to say in Scripture. There were some things that we assumed through the years based on some skimpy research about the resurrections, about the new heavens and the new earth, about who will be in the kingdom of God in the first resurrection and who will not. And I believe that the study that led to those sermons, and I believe the inspiration that was in them, uh, changes a lot of our understanding about the future. It became popular in the church, after it began to break apart especially, to say, well, some Protestants will be in the kingdom of God. There will probably be even some Sunday keepers there in the first resurrection because they're good people. Now, does that square with Scripture? I know it's a nice emotion, and I would love to see a lot of people in the kingdom of God, and in fact, I would like to see all mankind, before it's done, be a part of the kingdom of God, because its increase continues on and on. And a lot of friends and relatives who have died, I do not expect to be in the first resurrection. But the first resurrection is a very exclusive resurrection. It contains a finite number of people. We are here today to keep the Feast of Trumpets. We need to know who it's talking about. Does it include you and me? I do not believe it includes the guy that just sang the song. 
He thinks it does. What about you? Do you think he'll be there? Can you prove it one way or another beyond your feelings or emotion or what you think would be right? There is a way that seems right to a man, you know, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. So we have to be very, very careful and understand that the human mind is very deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And only God can plumb the depths of the human mind and psyche and emotions. So we cannot, can we, trust our emotions any more than we can trust our conscience unless our emotions and our conscience are educated according to the ways, the will, and the Word of God. It is only when you have your mind filled with God's words that you can begin to trust what you believe or think or feel. He who says he loves me and keep not my commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 4. There are a lot of people who think they love God. They do not keep His commandments. Therefore, their Christianity is a lie, and they do not know God. That's 1 John 2, 4. And it goes against a lot of people's emotions, but it's the Word of God. So let's trust the Word God has given us. And I want to explore this a bit, because I think on this day, it's good to review a bit to understand perhaps a little more clearly what is going on, what God wants, who He is working with, and who can be expected to be in the first resurrection. Are there any here who would like to be in the first resurrection? Hey, I finally ask a question people respond to. Taking years. Me too. Well, if I'd like to be, am I a qualified applicant? And how do I get from here to there? Because it's only a small group. Let's get into the Scriptures and see that. I want to start, though, in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is a very familiar one. I've got quite a few to cover today, so I hope I don't get too bogged down. 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Eternal, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Eternal shall not precede, should be precede, not prevent, them which are asleep. For the Eternal Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So this resurrection at the trump of God, when Christ descends from heaven, is the timing, not Pentecost as some would teach you, but at the Feast of Trumpets. It fits the marriage ceremony and marriage as well when we get back into that. Then we which are alive and remain, Paul thought Christ was coming back in his lifetime when he wrote this. Uh, he had been misled a bit by Christ himself. 
into thinking that. And God can sometimes leave us in the dark, can't He? He certainly did Paul. But those which are alive and remain, that could very, very well be you and me. I think that Christ will return within the lifetimes of most of us. And some of you who think you have one foot in the grave and one on a banana peel may get restored and fly like an eagle before this is done. So, even you who think, well, if this lasts another five, six, seven, eight, nine years, I'm not going to be here. You might. Don't count on dying and getting out of this. (laughs) You may live to see it. Those which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Eternal in the air. So he's coming down and arise to meet him in the air. So shall we ever be with the Eternal. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. This is something that's exciting. I felt we should play that music today to salivate on it a bit, to take comfort in it, to reflect on it and think about it for a while. Maybe that is more inspirational than anything that I can say in so many words. But if I can show you things in Scripture, maybe that will in itself be inspiring. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If this life is all there is, those of us who are human beings with human feelings and emotions, human desires, most of them base, we who are fighting against our human nature nature, are the most miserable group of people on the face of the earth bar none. It is far easier and sometimes more fun to sin. It is easier to run with the world and the pack out there than it is to fellowship with the Father and the Son, as we're told in John, and to fellowship among ourselves and not be friends with the world. He says if we're friends of the world, we are enemies of God in so many words. So, when we choose to live like Christ lived and follow His ways, if there is no reward for that, we are of all men most miserable. We might as well eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there is no hope of a resurrection. However, if there is hope of a resurrection, then striving against the flesh could very well be worth it because you could live forever in peace and happiness and harmony and love with no tears, no fears, no pain, or any bad emotion. You will not have any bad hair days once you're in the kingdom of God. So maybe it's worth it then to fight ourselves to be what we ought to be in spite of our nature which takes us the other way. And it is a fight. 
Everywhere in the Bible it is depicted as a fight. All right, let's go on down to verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Now there was the first resurrection, truly, was Christ going back to his Father in heaven. He was the first fruit. So we really, if you count that way, are candidates for the second resurrection, not the first. But when you're speaking of mankind, not Christ himself, perhaps it is more logical and makes more sense to call the first resurrection uh, that when Christ returns for his first fruits. And he says afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. So when he returns at the last trump, is when the first, first fruits will be made alive. Let's go on down. <clears throat> Verse 47. The first man, speaking of Adam on down, is of the earth earthy. The second man is the eternal from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. We kind begets kind. Humans beget humans. And we have been human all along. Spirit begets spirit, and you can't have anything that's a crossover in between in the meantime, as some think. Uh, verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Well, how does that take place? Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So we, as we are today, cannot inherit the kingdom of God because we are corrupt and corruptible. We're human and fleshly, and that cannot equate to being in the kingdom of God. You cannot go into the kingdom of God as a human being. I mean the spiritual, eternal kingdom of God. You might go physically into the millennium, but you're still not a member of the kingdom of God except as a human part of a human kingdom. Behold, I show you a mystery. This is mysterious. It's beyond the grasp of human beings, normally speaking, because they are human and they see each other die and they get old and die themselves. So it's a very mysterious thing to consider that there might be something beyond that. Although nearly all human beings and all cultures around the world believe that in some form or another there is an afterlife. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And then will be swallowed up death in victory. I won't read all the rest of that. We just heard it over and over in a song. Now, let's go for a moment to... Revelation 7. Here we have the end of the age coming. Here's an angel standing up holding back the heavens. And they have the seal of the living God. 
And a voice says in verse 3, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So at the end of the age, before the real destruction, not the destruction of the beast power during the tribulation, but the destruction decreed by God that will come afterward. So we have sealed the servants of God. It's held back. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And then it goes on down and shows 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, and so on. So there is 144,000 here, 12 times 12 tribes. Let's go for a moment before commenting on that to Revelation 14. There are some people think who think that we're talking about two different groups of 144,000 in these two passages, but I do not believe that to be the case. Anyway, chapter 14, I looked and lo, and a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's names written in their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung a new song before the throne. Now start thinking back to Revelation 2 and 3 about some of the things promised to the different churches. Singing a new song. Uh, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So the plan of redemption then is only 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. What happens to the rest? They stay there. They're not redeemed from it. And it is limited to 144,000 who can sing the new song. So when he promises the early New Testament church, you will sing a new song if you overcome, they are entering a limited capacity stadium, if you will. There are only 144,000 seats. No more, no less. Nobody else could sing it. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, there are those who think that these have to be unmarried people who have never had a sexual relationship. I think we can prove that that is not the case. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now, when it says these are the first fruits, that means they are all the first fruits. No more, no less. These 144,000 are the first fruits. So any time you find someone mentioned in the Bible as being a first fruit or of the first fruits, then that means that they are of the 144,000. They are included in that number. Let's check out a couple of things. Uh, 1 Corinthians, well, no, wait a minute, 2 Corinthians 11. I make these statements. I'd like to back them up right quickly. 2 Corinthians 11. And here I want verse 2. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. I doubt there was a virgin in the bunch under 8 or 9 or 10 years of age because that was a very immoral city. 
I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, he was continually upbraiding these very same people. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians. He was constantly telling them of their sins, of their problems, and many of those sins were of immorality. Fornication, adultery, incest. It's all in 1 and 2 Corinthians. So when he writes a book to them, he's writing to people who had had all kinds of sin in their lives. Now they have repented, and he intends to present them as chaste virgins to Christ. So very obviously, we're talking here of spiritual condition. Those who repent of their sins turn to God, their sins, whatever they were, are wiped away, and they are clean like a virgin before God. That shows the power of the sacrifice in the blood of Christ. But he was able to forgive these Corinthians, who had come out of a very corrupt society, clean them up in the Word of God and cause them to be candidates to be virgins before Christ. Christ is going to marry virgins, spiritual virgins. Those who have come out of corruption both physically in this world and the spiritual church corruption. To, to follow the real truth of God. And if they are not in that category, he will not marry them. You see, one of the reasons God is so concerned about young people keeping themselves clean and pure before they get married, because marriage is a type of Christ and his bride to come. And he wants both parties to the marriage to be clean and pure when they arrive to be married. So you living your physical life on this earth has great meaning and portent in picturing the kingdom of God. It's not just you and what you think you might like, but it has great deep spiritual meaning. And those are things you need to consider as you make choices in life. Otherwise, there's a lot of repenting to do. Now, I want to point out some things about those 12 tribes, because in, in Revelation 7, because some people think that you have to be an Israelite. And you have to be in a certain tribe. You know, there's 12,000 from Benjamin, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, and this 144,000. Is that the case? Now it says, these have been sealed, or will be sealed, before the destruction decreed begins. We need to explore what sealing means. But it talks about sealing 144,000. Is it just physical people? Let's go to Galatians 3. I mean, just, uh, just physical Israelites, not physical people. Yeah, it's all physical people. Galatians 3, verse 28. Now, in coming to the church, Paul was one who had been commissioned to go to the Gentiles. 
He preached to Israel as well, but he was given that specific commission to go to the Gentiles. And he says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, and if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, the promise which came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the twelve tribes. And he said, if you have come to become a spiritual Israelite, that you are the heirs of Abraham according to the promise of life eternal. So if they were in the church, they were part of Christ, part then of the bride of Christ. Notice he says it several different ways, so there could be no misunderstanding. He says you're not Jew or Greek or Gentile. There's, in God's mind and view, there is no difference once you're baptized into the truth. No difference. There is no difference between bond nor free. Now, we should know physically if we are a slave or if we are not. But there's no difference. He says there is neither male nor female. Look down or look in the mirror. Are you one or the other? I hope. Yes, we're still male, and we're still female, and we're still different colors and races. But as far as God is concerned, spiritually discerned, there is no difference. Romans 11 talks about grafting in the Gentiles so that they become part of the tree. And that the natural fruit that was on the tree to begin with was in great danger of being destroyed before the ones who were grafted in were, if they would not accept the ones who were grafted in. So, with God, when it comes to the kingdom of God, there is no difference. And once you're baptized, you become a spiritual Israelite. James 1. Verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. When we are baptized, we are begotten of the Spirit of God. Okay? We understand that. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Once we are baptized and begotten, then we have entered the qualification process to become one of the first fruits. Christ became the first fruit when? When he was resurrected. Now, he was only a candidate up until the time that he was resurrected and went back to his father, right? Because as long as he was a human being, he could have sinned and come short of the glory of God and not been resurrected. He would have had to have died for his own sin, not yours and mine. 
So until he was actually changed, he did not become the first of the first fruits. So now, even though we are begotten of God, we are not yet born into the kingdom of God. We are a candidate to be a first fruit of God, but we are not yet a first fruit until the first resurrection. I know there were some sermons given recently that said that we're already born into the kingdom of God. No, we are not. That which is flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, would one of you fly through all for me right quick? Are you spirit? No, you're flesh. I'm flesh. I am born of the flesh. Ask my mother. She knows. I am not born again. I am begotten of the Spirit to be born when the first resurrection occurs, if I qualify. We just read that, didn't we? 1 Corinthians 15. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Revelation 14.4. These are the first fruits. I've already actually covered that, but we could emphasize it a little bit. All right, let's go down to Romans 8. Let's see who the first fruits are. A little more back up here. Romans 8 and verse 23. The whole creation groans together waiting until the resurrection. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption in with the redemption of our body. So 1 Corinthians 14 talks about those who were redeemed from the earth, and there are 144,000 of them. So when Paul is writing to the Romans here, he's talking about those who are candidates to be redeemed, and who have the adoption, or are waiting for the adoption as sons. The Romans were Gentiles. They had been grafted in or adopted into Israel but we are all awaiting the adoption into the kingdom of God. We're not there yet. We're in the adoption line, if you will, to use another analogy, which Paul uses, not me. First uh, Corinthians 15. We've already been there, but I want to emphasize this. First Corinthians 15, verse 20. Uh but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So the firstfruits are those who are changed at the return of Christ at the last trump. Um, let's look at those who were sealed. It says that they, remember there in Revelation 7, it says you have to be sealed. When does that sealing process happen? Many people think that it occurs just before the end, just before Christ returns, 
144,000 are sealed right then. Now, does that fit the Scriptures? Let's go to uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 22. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Speaking of Christ, who has also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So he's writing to the church at Corinth and including himself in saying, God has sealed us. So Paul and those Corinthians were already sealed. I can give you names of people who are already sealed. I can give you names of people who are first fruits. Go to Hebrews 11. Whole list of people there. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rahab, Gideon, David, on and on. Samuel, it mentions many, many people. And it said, these will not receive the kingdom of God before we do. That fits 1 Corinthians 15, where it says... Those who are alive will not precede those who are dead, but the dead in Christ will rise first, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those people, and then we which are alive and remain. So, there are already many, many names of people who have been sealed and who are now first fruits in the grave, awaiting the time when the 144,000 is completed. There aren't 144,000 called right at the end. What do you do with all those others that Paul called first fruits? Let's go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 13. In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance. Our inheritance is eternal life in the kingdom of God. So this sealing that he's speaking of here in Ephesians 1.13 is of the promise of eternal life. When does eternal life come? When Christ returns at the last trump. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Christ's sacrifice purchased us, redeemed us from the rest of the world. So, that is the language of Revelation 14. Those who were redeemed from the earth who are the first fruits. So, these people at Ephesus were included as having been sealed with the spirit of promise to the inheritance of eternal life. Chapter 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Revelation 14.4 is speaking of the day of redemption. Hold back the trouble until the first resurrection occurs, and those that I've redeemed, the 144,000, the first fruits, Rise to meet Christ in the air. There have been many people who are first fruits who have died. Many people who have been sealed who have died. You 
are now being sealed and prepared as first fruits. Now those who have died in the faith already are determined. You and I are not fully determined yet. Now we are spoken of as sealed. We are spoken of as being written in the book of life. You're here and you've been baptized into the church of God and received God's Spirit. Your name is already written in the book of life. And you will be in the resurrection unless you do things that will cause your name to be taken out and replaced by someone else. Remember the parable of the marriage and how... Some were found without wedding garments on when they came to the wedding. And he said, cast them out into eternal fire and bring in some out of the streets and wherever and bring them to the wedding. So they were on the guest list. Their name was in the book of life. They caused it to be taken out and be replaced with someone else because there is an exact, finite number who are to be the bride of Christ. No more and no less. Revelation 9. And here I want verse 4. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. The beast is going to try to seal us under his name. God will seal us in his name. Now, which do you wish to have? Let's see if this fits the promises. Let's go back to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. And see what he says to the churches. All seven of them. Chapter 2, verse 8. I'll go through these quickly. Um, no, to verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. He's not just talking to this one, to Ephesus, but to the church edge. So the promises given here may be delivered to seven, but each of them applies to all seven, according to that wording. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, to live forever, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the kingdom of God, the paradise of God, is going to contain those in the church who overcome. Uh, let's go down to chapter 2, verse 10. It says, don't fear, at the bottom of that verse, I will give you a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as, he that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. So they will be in the resurrection. They will not die the spiritual death in the lake of fire if they overcome. Uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as, To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, the food that makes you live forever. 
and will give them a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knowing save he that receives it, or knows save he that receives it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 26. He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Remember Revelation 5, verse 10. We shall reign as kings on the earth a thousand years. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. Now there is power given by God to those who overcome. Real power. And I will give him the morning star. I will give him Christ. We know from other scriptures, if you're given Christ, you're given Rideship, part of the marriage of Christ. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment. All those who, we'll see in Revelation in a little bit, the bride wears white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So you see, your name, if you're in the church, is already in the book of life. It will not be blotted out if you overcome. If you don't overcome, then it will be blotted out. Revelation 3, verse 12. Uh, Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. We'll read about that in a little bit in Revelation 21. So you're part of the temple of God and the city of God and new Jerusalem if you overcome. We'll see that that equates to the bride of Christ in a little bit. Uh, chapter, or verse 18 of this same chapter. Even to the Laodicean, I say even, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, rich spiritually, and white raiment. White raiment is of the bride. So Laodiceans can repent and be part of the bride, thankfully for you and me. That you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Those who lapsed into the Laodicean condition have trouble seeing spiritually. They have trouble understanding. That is why there is so little understanding truly in the church of God today. Their eyes are spiritually blinded. But ISAV can be used and that problem can be solved. Let's go to Matthew 22. I referred to this, but I want to touch on it a little bit more. Matthew 22. <clears throat> this is about the wedding supper. It said in verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which made a marriage for his son. So he says, I'm telling you about the kingdom of God here in this parable I'm about to talk of, about to give you. He sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. They would not come. Many were called. Many would not come. Many are called, few are chosen. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them what you're bidden. Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my ox and my fatling are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. 
I think Herbert Armstrong did this. He bid many, many people, hey, there's an opportunity out there if you'll just take part in it. But they refused. Wouldn't come. They made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Hey, I'm too busy to worry about that. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was angry. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. So there will be those who will try to prevent the ones who do respond. And we see a lot of trouble about to come and a lot of persecution on God's true people by those who would prevent the ones who did answer the call. And God is going to send out His witnesses against them and bring plagues upon them and so on, just as this analogy indicates. Then says He to His servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So some will not qualify. Some will have their names blotted out. They will not overcome. So they gathered them up, both bad and good. Uh, Paul was a murderer. <coughs> Doesn't matter what we've been, good or bad as human beings, uh, we can hear the call. And the wedding was furnished with guests. That means not guests, it's a parable. It really means those who are part of the wedding party. How do you describe a bride as 144,000? Uh, that's, that's an unusual thing. We usually have one-on-one -on -one getting married. I don't have time to go into all that to prove that. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. He hadn't overcome. He didn't have white garments. And he said to him, Friend, how came you in here not having a wedding garment? How do you think that you're going to get into the kingdom of God when you have not overcome and grown and become righteous? How do you think you can break the commandments of God, not keep His Sabbath, not keep His holy days, not do everything that this Word says, and be in the kingdom of God? How do you Methodists and Baptists and Catholics and Hindus and Buddhists think you can be in the kingdom of God? You don't have on the proper attire. Your character is not what it's supposed to be. You're not doing what God said. This is pretty exclusive. You've got to have on the right clothes. The garments of righteousness. And righteousness is not just feeling good and being nice. Righteousness is obeying the laws of God. It's what righteousness is. He was speechless. Oh, I don't know. I'm supposed to keep the Ten Commandments. Ugh. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the conclusion is many are called, but few chosen. Now let's go to Revelation 19. Uh, yeah, I think I can finish this up in the amount of time. Revelation 19. Now, we see the fall of Babylon here in chapter 18, which I think is the fall of this nation, and ultimately the, the falling of Babylon again, which we represent Babylon as the head of it today. And when we fall, the great whore Israel is killed by the beast and the false prophet. 
then that empire rises and Babylon falls again. The whole world system will fall at that time. So this is the context we're speaking of, is the end of this age, okay? Verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. There is a period of time from the betrothal, pictured by Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost, which we'll get back to, and you have a long, hot summer before the bride is prepared. So we're fast-forwarding here to the fall of Babylon and the kingdoms of this world being destroyed, and it says, by that time, the bride will have made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Remember Isaiah 54, I think the last verse, says that our righteousness will be of him, not of ourselves, because all of ours is his filthy rags. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true sayings of God. So, the ones who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb are the righteous who have, at that point, made themselves ready as a bride for Christ. That preparation is still going on. Paul, Peter, James, John, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those people are already prepared, and they're just waiting to be resurrected at the last trump because they've already put on righteousness. We are still in the process. And if we don't blot our name out, and if we overcome, we will be added as those who are alive and remain unless we die in the meantime and be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, let's go on to Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, here's where we went way off the mark doctrinally in Worldwide Church of God, because we thought that uh, Christ would return, the first fruits would be uh, resurrected and rule with Christ a thousand years, and then there would be a second resurrection of a hundred years at the uh, end of the millennium, the last great day, and then all people would have had a chance at salvation, and then the whole earth would just be completely burned up, charred to a crisp. And then the Father and the Son would come down and dwell with those who were immortal at that time. Wrong picture. Wrong doctrine. Doesn't fit the Bible at all. Ezekiel 47, verse 8. Ezekiel 47 and verse 8. Then said he to me, These waters issue out toward the east country, and go down into the desert, and go into the sea, which being forth, brought forth into the sea, the waters were healed. Uh, and, it shall, and it shall come to pass that everything that lives, which moves, wherever the rivers shall come, shall live, and there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come there, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live where the river comes. Uh, there's somewhere here it says that the salt will be removed. Verse 11, The miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed. 
they shall be given to salt. So the healing means not the oceans and the water going away. It means that the salt will be taken out. (coughs) The waters will be healed. So when it talks about there was no more sea in Revelation 21.1, it's talking about everything now being fresh water, not no more sea as we know oceans in that sense. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Remember uh, Hebrews 11, 12, uh, I mean 12, 22, and 23, about how we are Zion, how we are Jerusalem, how he spoke of the church as being that and of Christ. Uh, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven as a prepared as a bride. <coughs> and he talks about the tears being wiped away and so on. Verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Now it was taught in the church that after he burned the earth and the heavens, quoting Second Peter 3.18, uh, that everything would be created new. Is that what it's talking about? Let's examine a couple of passages which knock that in the head. Totally and completely. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. Now, I'm, I'm not going into all the scriptures today, for Satan. I can't in one sermon, but I want us to understand. All right? Isaiah 65, verse 17. Here's the one we quoted about all men would either be saved by then or burned up in the lake of fire when the whole earth burned up and no one was left. Notice verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. That which was past will be over and done, and nobody will even want to think back about it. And there we stop quoting, basically. But you be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now remember, the church is Jerusalem. The 144,000. We'll see it. The bride of Christ. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. We just saw that in Revelation 21. When the bride is prepared and Christ uh, comes with her. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner before a hundred years old shall be accursed. There's where we thought we got that hundred years. But we didn't read from verse 21 on. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, they live long lives like trees do, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. So we're talking here about the new heavens and the new earth and people living as human beings, building houses and having offspring in the new heavens and the new earth. Go to chapter 66, if you don't believe that. Verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, 
shall remain before me, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain. When God redoes the earth, he says it will always remain, as will your seed, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth here, and men, flesh, coming to worship. So there's still flesh around during the new heavens and new earth. Lo and behold, in spite of our former teaching. Now, people used to, in the church, the ministry, quote Second Peter 3.18, where it says the heavens and earth will be dissolved and all that. Peter talking... And you know where he was quoting from when he wrote that? He was quoting from Matthew 24. I mean, not Matthew, from Isaiah 24. Uh, let me go back there for a moment. Isaiah 24. Here, Ellen G. White got all screwed up. He says, Behold, the Lord, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste and turns it upside down and scatters abroad the inhabitants thereof. Ellen G. White called this the, uh, the vessel of earth theory. She used Isaiah 24 to say that the earth would be, become totally desolate. Now, she left out parts of some of the verses in Isaiah 24 to come up with that. And we, as a church, when we read 2 Peter 3, thought that the whole heavens and earth would be dissolved. Now, that's, that's figurative language. It's metaphorical language. Earth dissolved means it's going to be changed. It doesn't mean it's going to be like acid in a beaker and just disappear. He was quoting this chapter when he said that. The land shall be utterly emptied, verse 3, and utterly spoiled, for the Eternal has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth do languish. The earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. It talks down here about the earth being burned. Yeah, therefore, verse 6, has the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell in, therein are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned. Talking about the same time Peter was. And Ellen G. White quoted that far and stopped. And so did the church. And it says then, and few men left. Some men left. When the earth is burned. Let's see. Oh, okay, verse 19. The earth is utterly broken down. The earth is clean dissolved. The earth is moved exceedingly. This is what Peter quoted directly. The earth shall reel, reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, and it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall punish the host of the high ones that are on earth, and the kings of the earth upon the earth. They'll still be there. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit, and shall, gather, uh, and shall be shut up in the prison, and after many days they shall be visited. So they're going to be here on the earth and shut up for a while. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the eternal of hosts 
shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. It is at the time that the earth is taken away and renewed and the new heaven and earth comes and Christ will be here ruling. Not 1,100 years later, but at that time. So the new heavens and the new earth are at the beginning of the millennium. That is when Christ comes to reign on the earth and brings his bride with him to reign a thousand years. And the earth will be renewed. It isn't completely dissolved and burned up. There will be few men left. And there will be few inhabitants thereof. On and on it goes. Now, let's go on down. Uh, let's see in Revelation 21. Uh, verse 7. He that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my people. Son. Same exact words he used in speaking to the seven churches. Then it gives the category of those who will not be there. Don't want to concentrate on that today. Verse 9. And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials of the seven last plagues. The seven last plagues come before the millennium. They come before Christ comes to rule on the earth. They come immediately after the tribulation of those days, according to Matthew 24. So at the time of the seven last plagues, okay? At the time of. That's the context here. And talk with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. So at the time of the seven last plagues, the bride of Christ is going to come into view. Where from? How? He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So he says, I'm going to show you the bride. And then immediately he shows him the city of God, the new Jerusalem. That's why we are spoken of as Zion and Jerusalem. Because the 144,000 are the new Jerusalem. They are the holy city. They will be coming down as a bride adorned at the time of the seven last plagues. We rise to meet Christ in the air when He returns. If we are part of that sealed 144,000, we go with Him to His throne, wherever with Him, where we have a year's honeymoon during the time of the seven last plagues. And then we come down with him. That is the time he will be riding the white horse, his vesture dipped in blood, because he is coming to destroy. Having the glory of God and her light was like a stone. What Did I misstate that? He comes and destroys... Then he comes back with his bride to rule. Uh, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, had twelve gates, and they had the names of the twelve tribes. Revelation 7, we talked about the twelve thousand from each tribe, 144,000. So he says the bride is the holy Jerusalem, the city. What is her configuration? What's her figure, if you will? She has twelve gates. She has 12,000 each one. The apostles' names are at the head of each gate. 
I didn't go to that scripture that where Christ told them, I think it was Luke 22 maybe, where he said that you apostles will be the heads of the twelve tribes. That proves that you don't have to be, in Revelation 7, that does not have to be 12,000 blood Israelites from 12,000 tribes. Because of those twelve apostles, many of them were brothers. So they had to have come from the same tribe. If you had two Jews and two Naphtalites and two uh, Ephraimites, then an Ephraimite had to be over one of the twelve tribes that he had never been physically part of. Okay? And there's no room for the Gentiles then. But there is. So we're talking of spiritual delineation, which tribe you will be in. It doesn't matter what you were physically. Gentile, uh, Manassite, whatever, God will spiritually place you in the tribe He wants you in to be a part of the Bride of Christ. doesn't matter. Where would you be if He was... If you were part Gadite, part Ephraimite, part uh, Mexican, part Chinese, there'd be parts of you kind of scattered all over, wouldn't there? No. We're so mixed up, He will put us where he will, we will best fit in His government, no matter what our background, because it is a spiritual uh, appointment. And at that time, I saw no temple there in verse 22, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So when the bride comes down, she is the new Jerusalem, and both the Father and the Son are there. When she comes back to rule, in other words, a thousand years, both the Father and the Son are with her, the new heavens and the new earth. And all flesh will come before them to worship because it will be in the millennium, not later. And God lighted it up. And then, let's see, verse 27, There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie. It says later that people who are unclean cannot come in the city. Okay? They're around. They can't come in. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You are written in the Lamb's book of life. The guy that sang that song today is not, was not, and probably won't be in this life. He'll probably be in the second resurrection, which will come at the end of the millennium. But the kingdom of God will already be here, and you'll be ruling in it a thousand years. So the Feast of Trumpets is about the first resurrection and the return of Christ to gather His 144,000 sealed true Christians who are the first fruits. They are limited to 144,000. And not only that, <coughs> that's where our understanding used to stop. They are also the formal delineation of who the Bride of Christ is. <coughs> that is the formal acceptance of the Bride of Christ. <coughs> we which are alive and remain will only be candidates up to that point. But the moment that last trump sounds, and those in their graves who have qualified, who are sealed, who are firstfruits, rise out of their graves, 
and those who are alive and remain who have qualified also rise in the air, that is the formal acceptance. <laughs> because as human beings, we cannot be the bride of Christ. He will only marry like kind. We will have to rise in the air and be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye into spirit and then go up to marry him. Once you've reached that point, your name can't be blotted out. At that moment, the twinkling of an eye, that quickly, it's guaranteed. It's done. It's finished. The mystery of God is solved. You will be spirit and you will be part of the bride of Christ. Up until that point, you could still turn away. There is his formal acceptance of you. Well, the Feast of Trumpets has such incredible meaning, both as Christians and as the bride and the marriage uh, symbolism. I don't have time to go into it more than that amount of time anyway, so we'll stop there for today. But I wanted to review who will be there when the trumpet sounds. Because there are a lot of people who think they will be, and they won't be. We are those who have the opportunity to be. If we will grow and overcome, that formal acceptance will come in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, and you'll be there.